tonight on the Tuesday Night Movie. She was a filmmaker. He was a writer. She lived in Indiana. He lived in Queens. But their fates were bound together by a terrifying secret. They both loved made-for-TV movies. Based on the shocking true story, Katie Madonna Lee and Louis Jordan star in Mother, Murderer, Podcaster. Hi, this is Mother, Murderer, Podcaster, a show about the campiest and the best made-for-TV movies of the 80s and 90s. I'm Katie Madonna Lee, a filmmaker. And I'm Louis Jordan, a writer. I grew up watching TV movies. I love them. They are a big influence on my work. And I'm new to TV movies, but I'm excited to learn about them. And this week, we're talking about the 1983 ABC TV movie of the week, uh, Making of a Male Model, starring Joan Collins, John Eric Hexum, and Jeff Conway. So, this movie is, is interesting because it's a completely goofy topic for a movie. I mean, it's completely silly and campy and fun, but then there's all of this stuff that's going on behind the scenes and in the lives of the people that like adds another layer to it, you know, like, so the biggest star in this movie is Joan Collins, but John Eric Hexum is the lead and he's playing this up and coming star in the modeling world. And he was exactly that thing you know, he'd only been acting for a short time when he did Making of a Male Model, and he was set for this big career. And then he tragically died of an accidental gunshot wound on the set of a TV show that he did just about a year after he did this movie. And then Jeff Conway plays this model who used to be big but now is over the hill and he's trying to cling to his youth and he, he's sort of this cautionary figure and he dies of a drug overdose and then in real life jeff conway had a, a big career he was in you know the movie of greece he was in you know the tv show taxi and then his career got derailed by drug addiction and ultimately he died from it Anyway, I think we we can get into the, you know into the nitty gritty of this in a little bit, but I think that it's like watching this movie made me think about how we can we can hold two things in our head at the same time. We can enjoy the silliness of this movie and just how like drop dead gorgeous and hot John Eric Hexum is. Um, and then we can also like see the other stuff in there and, you know, and we can, we can hold both of those things in our heads at the same time. So here, let's we'll do a, a quick, uh, plot summary just to like get everybody up to speed and yes. then we'll, we'll get into it. Okay. So first of all, the, this movie uh, it was 
Joan Collins, we hadn't mentioned. So she plays Kay Dillon, who's the head of a big New York modeling agency. And she's like a glamorous, no-nonsense businesswoman. And she's she orders the businesswoman special. Um, and she is at a photo shoot in Nevada when there's this airplane that looks like a crop duster flies overhead. And I really don't understand why they hired that or what that it, it was an excuse to have like a dramatic entrance. It was so silly. Yeah. Um, yeah. Anyway, the pilot is this ranch hand named Tyler Burnett, who's played by John Eric Hexum, who looks like a Greek God um, in a cowboy hat. And so Kay tells him that she could make him a big star uh, in New York city. And he wants to like, he's just a normal guy who wants to settle down and buy a ranch. And so he goes off to New York City to make his fortune. And then she and her team of gay, gay stylists remake him into this sophisticated hunk. And he moves into an apartment with uh, a gay model named Chuck, who's played by Jeff Conway, who's uh, another of Kay's clients. And Chuck used to be famous. But now he's in his mid-30s, his career is sort of puttering out, and he's doing plastic surgery. Um, he's, he's campy and he's self-destructive, and he's basically like a walking warning sign for the dangers of showbiz. So then there's all this stuff. Tyler and Kay go to a gay club that's supposed to be Studio 54, but it looks like it's some gay club in like Boise, Idaho. It does not look... Like, they're not exactly serving Studio 54. And then, um, and Tyler is horrified by all of the, like, gayness and debauchery. And then Kevin McCarthy from Invasion of the Body Snatchers is this, like, drunk asshole PR guy um, who Tyler punches out when he tries to manhandle Kay. And then that leads to a big fight between Kay and Tyler. And then they have sex, you know, it's like it breaks the sexual tension and then everything is perfect. Tyler is the face of fever cologne and he becomes the biggest new male model in America. And he and Kay are happy and they're in a relationship and Tyler wants them to settle down. But Kay is an independent career woman. And so she, <laughs> she, uh, will not. Um, so she starts stepping out with this new blonde surfer twink client of hers. And then Chuck, meanwhile, he's drinking and he's, you know, his drug use are out of control. Yes, and he's monologuing and he gets rejected from a job because he's too old. So he goes into a spiral. And then Tyler and Kay break up. And then Tyler goes home to discover that Chuck has died from a drug overdose. And then Tyler starts to drink and party. And then pretty soon he's showing up to shoots drunk. And then he decides, okay, I'm going to get out of this. So he flies back to Nevada and buys that ranch that he was dreaming of buying. But he tries to get out and they pull him back in like, like the mafia because um, he fever cologne is suing Tyler for breach of contract unless he finishes one last commercial. And so then he goes back to New York and shoots the commercial and like 
it goes well and it's kind of anticlimactic like you you're expecting more of a conflict there but but it just it, it, everybody likes him and it's a good shoot and then Kay uh tells him that he's been offered the lead in a TV series and he could be a big star but he's decided that he's getting out and he goes back home to Nevada and Kay doesn't stop him because she doesn't want him to end up like Chuck and Tyler walks out of the building and he buys a carriage horse off of a driver and he rides it down Fifth Avenue into the sunset. Um, which I don't, it, is he expecting to like ride it all the way to Nevada? Yeah. You know, um, yeah, yeah, Probably. yeah, totally. <laughs> Once he gets to Pennsylvania, he'll be fine. <laughs> like once he gets to Amish country, Lagrange, PA, he's fine. Yeah, yeah, we'll be able to find <laughs> some horse feed and some water and stuff. Um, so it's basically like Valley of the Dolls, but gender flipped. So I thought the first, um, the first person that we could get into uh, is Joan Collins, Joe. who. You would think that Joan Collins would be the campiest part of any movie that she's in. <laughs> and yet. Um, she's upstaged. Yeah, she's upstaged. <laughs> um, she's upstaged by the neighbor from El Bundy, El Bundy's neighbor from Married with Children, <laughs> Ted McGilley. Oh, my and God. The iconic uh, monologues from Jeff Conway. Yeah, yeah, no, it's, um, well, here, let me, let me, first off, just for people who don't know, Joan Collins, she was 50 years old when she was in Making of a Male Model, so. And she looks amazing. She looks fucking amazing. Um, she was, she was a movie star, um, she trained at uh, the Royal Academy of Dramatic Arts and she was in Hollywood movies with like Betty Davis and Paul Newman, but she never really quite launched. She was always sort of like a, like a, uh, the person who get the parts that Elizabeth Taylor turned down. And so then by the sixties, she was just sort of doing TV and then she was doing all these campy horror films. Um, and it wasn't until 1981, when she was cast in Dynasty as Alexis Colby, yes. the glamorous, the glamorous bitch villain of Dynasty, that then she had, she became huge and it was the number one show in America and she was a huge star and she was this new type of basically the first cougar. Yes, like, she honestly, really was. Yeah, she, yeah, she, she was. And uh, and then this was like, you know, it was produced by Aaron Spelling, who produced Dynasty. It was directed by a guy who directed a bunch of episodes of Dynasty. The, the costumes were by the guy who did the gowns for Dynasty. So this was like a Dynasty production. Um, but um, and and you can kind of tell, right? Oh, you can totally tell. I mean, I, I honestly can't tell the difference between Alexis and Kay Dillon. No, I like she. I, Is there I, like, a difference? Kay's a little nicer. Like, <laughs> yeah, she she does some fire everybody. 
She's You're all not, fired. Yeah, she because Alexis is like, I own 51% of this company and I'm going to destroy you. You know, it's all of that, like, you know, yeah. it's dangerous to cross a woman like me, kind of. Um, <laughs> and, and Kay is a little nicer, but she's still like kind of a manipulator and using people. Yes, um, very much so. And she's also, um, she wears rhinestone evening gowns at home. My idol. <laughs> and, and she sleeps in, the same. She sleeps in full makeup and hair. Um, <laughs> um, but uh, I, what did you think of her, of her in this, in this film? What did you think of her performance? I loved it. I mean, her, she had those lines, you know, like, what, what is it like? The Martini's getting warm and I'm getting cold. <laughs> like, things like that. Like, you know, she had a very, uh, I, I mean, I, I was honestly watching the man candy in the film because I honestly thought, you know, how can you how can you beat, uh, you know, Joan Collins like on screen? She's very yeah. hard to compete with because she's so iconic. She's so good with the faces, you know, like Gloria yeah. Swanson with her faces. Like mm. so every she definitely has started face choreography. Like, you know, she definitely gives you that old, like, I'm pouting and I'm serious. Um, mm -hmm. But I think she played it as best she could for what it was. I mean, the content is, she made it fun. She made it sexually interesting. Like, she, she wasn't a wet fish and she definitely wasn't apologizing for going after what she wanted. Which no. I think is half the battle. I think a lot of actors, female actors her age that are playing like the hot cougar could not go in there. Like she could, I mean, I honestly, I follow her on Instagram and I oh, feel yeah, me like too. Joan Collins is really Kay Dillon. So I'm not yeah. sure if it was a stretch because I always see her with these young men that I'm like, wait a minute. Oh yeah. No, I mean, she's, <laughs> she, she has become like, she's a real star and she knows that like she's, she's giving, she's giving the gays what they want. You know, she's giving her audience what they want, you know, on her Instagram and in her life and everything. Um, the thing that struck me was um, that she has great like technique, like the way that she delivers lines, she can make a line that's really not that funny sound really funny and witty and sparkling just by the way that she delivers it. And I think that comes from like years of being in bad movies, having to like spruce up bad dialogue. Um, oh, and, yeah. and, and she's so good at that. And she's really funny. The thing that I don't buy from her is like vulnerability because there's no vulnerability to her whatsoever. Yeah, I didn't want him to end up like Chuck. Yeah, no, she's she's not. There's nothing <laughs> soft about her. She's soft like a, you know, like a diamond. Um, she's not soft. Um, no. And but, I think she would really like that compliment. <laughs> yes, I think so. Um, and and you know, and, and I think that that works for her character because her character is like all business. 
And she's, uh, she's always like looking at all of the angles and kind of manipulating people. And so when she's like being vulnerable, it kind of seems like she's faking it. So that kind of works for the part in a way. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I, I thought it was interesting that she's like, it's a total gender flip. Like the person who's being ogled, she's beautiful, but the person who's being ogled is John Eric Hexum. And she is this like fantasy of being like a powerful, glamorous woman that like women can watch this movie and step into her shoes and be like, I'm Joan Collins and I own 51% of this company. And, you know. And this is my, and this is, and this is my boyfriend. I mean, it is a it is a it yeah. is a female fantasy that er, John Eric Hexum would be like. I want to settle down with you. Yeah, yeah. We have to talk about the 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 special effect, the world wonder that is like John Eric Hexum's face and body. Wow! Wow! It, uh, because he's basically he, he's like a genetic masterpiece. He really is. And what's fascinating is if you watch Mysteries and Scandals, his E True Hollywood story, basically, which is sad. Yeah. Uh, when you see him growing up and developing, he definitely, uh, you can see how shy he was and he was very introverted and he had huge glasses. He really turned, he was like, a, he definitely cocooned you know he came into his own in college uh whatever happened to him in you know michigan state made him turn into a butterfly because he definitely it wasn't like he he was always this good looking person i mean i he had to make the man so there is truth to that. Like he did have to get a haircut, you know, he yeah. did. I mean, the haircut and making of a model and the eyebrows wasn't like, oh, like they I knew it wasn't that dramatic. Like he was already gorgeous, you yeah. know, when they yeah. they did the makeover. It was like and there he is, you know, it was like the Brady Bunch movie where Florence Henderson turns around and it's like she has the same or Shelly Long playing Flores Henderson. Mm-hmm. She has the same haircut after like four hours. It's like, oh, that's <laughs> okay. He's he's a gorgeous man anyway. But I feel like his transformation from when he was in uh, high school to when he moved to New York was massive. Like he really was like calculated. He was like, okay, I need to lift weights. I need to get a haircut. I need to get contacts. I need to hustle. And yeah. and he even said that. He said, your looks are what get you into the door. And after that, you're on your own. Yeah, he, he started out, he, uh, he, you know, went to college. He decided to go to New York to pursue acting and everything. And then literally in a year, he got like a manager. He went to L.A. and he got a TV series. Because he was just that, like, shockingly beautiful. That, like, how could he not? So, which is literally what happens to his character. His character, like, goes off to New York from nowhere. And then suddenly, like, overnight, he's massive. And it's like, I'm, I'm amazed to hear. I was watching interviews. And apparently, like, John Eric, uh, auditioned for this he had to read for this movie and i was like this wasn't written for him because it seems like it's about his like it's literally his life 
Yeah. I mean, maybe he had to read for it for a chemistry match. You know, yeah, maybe to see like because it's you know what I'm saying? Maybe a yeah. chemistry match. Because because it, like Joan was Joan was like the you know, it was it was for her and it was like dynasty. It was all dynasty people. And then they brought him in to like read for the part. And then he was like, I got it. Because he was on this TV show called Voyagers, which is yeah. really cute like time travel adventure show for like kids. Um, but it flopped. It only lasted a well, season. It flopped because they put it up against 60 minutes and yeah. they didn't let it build an audience. And Yo, if parents, yeah, they didn't I, let it, they, they were, it was like one of those, Oh, we're going to pull the plug on it before it can build an audience. Even though we're putting it up against a, a show that has an intensely loyal audience, like 60 minutes. You yeah, know? no, it's, and, and I've seen it. It's, it's so much fun. It's cute as hell. Like, it's great. But so then this was what he did right after that. And this was like kind of. So he gives a good performance, but it's also like he's so beautiful that it's distracting that it's like he's so beautiful that I can't look at anybody else that I'm not even paying attention to what he's saying because he's so beautiful. It's like that that impact that people um, like. What made me think I, I what I thought of was because he has there's this part where um he does like a like a poster, you know, where he's like doing this. I know that poster. And- <laughs> that is like you're just like, how is it possible? Who is this person? Yeah, it's like, like this is like like this is like the this is like the ideal like masculine man. Like this is this is what testosterone is supposed to do. Uh <laughs> You know, this is what it's supposed to do. This is like the, this is a man, you know, with a capital M. And I was looking at it and I was like, this reminds me of like the Farrah Fawcett poster from yeah. the, from Charlie's Angels. This is like the male version. Which, he, he could have been like the male Farrah Fawcett yeah. where they're just yeah, like he, so overwhelmingly beautiful that you can't believe it. But then they also yeah, have you, like something inside of charisma. them. Which we yeah. found out through Farrah's TV movies that she has that, that she's a good actress. Oh, yeah. Bernie Bed. Yes. Small yeah. sacrifices. Just yeah. have to throw it out there, Farrah. <laughs> um, but yeah, yeah, he had that. Um, and then another thing that I noticed was um, in the. Uh, uh, the secrets and scandals or whatever it's called um, that uh, the, uh, his ex-girlfriend said that um, he's got, he's like a, she said, he's like a kid in a grown man's body. What's not to love about him. And he really does kind of have that thing. And it's almost like a, it's almost like an opposite Marilyn thing. Yeah. You know, where like she she looks like this woman, capital W woman, but then there's this like and and I felt like that was when I liked him the best in this movie. Wasn't when he was like being a dominating man, but when he was like confused and nervous and felt lost and was like insecure, but he looked like that you know like this like the most macho man ever and something about that combination just like uh, was so amazing 
Well, one of the scenes I really liked, and he didn't really have any lines in it. It was just him sitting in the dark, listening to voice messages, and oh, yeah. it was after Chuck died. And it's just a small little sequence. Um, and the excellent, the lighting in this is great. I love the lighting. Oh, yeah. I love the camera work, and I, I, I really appreciated the camera movement. In this scene, especially where he's sitting in the dark and they have it lit like film noir, you know, where it's kind of heavy on the shadows, where it's a street light spilling in to do the fill. And he's just listening. And that, I would say, is probably his. That is my favorite moment. When I think of this movie, I don't think of, oh, it's so silly and campy. I kind of think of him sitting alone, listening to these message messages, thinking about his roommate who died yeah you know, that he actually cared about um that is my favorite moment from this you know he's already very famous at that point and there's some woman who like got his number who's calling him and she's like you know she's like you don't know me but i love you and i'll do anything for you and he's just like oh my god i'm so miserable i can't you can you know yeah, it it made me I, that that scene made me think in some ways of that scene in with Glenn Close in Fatal Attraction where she's like turning the light on and off. <gasps> yeah! Oh my god! <laughs> and she's just there and she's so intense and just like miserable. But she's just like sitting alone in the dark. Yeah, I saw Fatal Attraction when I was like seven. <laughs> oh, my God. And that is God. way too young. I was uh, just like, what? I don't want to be a career woman. Yeah, career what? women go is insane this... and kill people they... and get killed by moms. Yeah, I'm like, ah. Yeah. Woo, that was a lot. That... <laughs> <laughs> but but he, he has this thing that mm. it, you just keep thinking like, oh, my God, it's so sad that he died because he's so beautiful and he you know he'd only been acting for like you know what a year two years at that point so yeah he doesn't really have like there's certain parts where he's not as good like there's the part where he's like reacting to hearing that chuck died and like he can't quite he doesn't quite get there but um but he's working on he's working on like you know instinct but yeah, he's so he's so good and he's not campy at all, you know, like he's so natural and and good and like and and is funny when he's supposed to be funny and is sexy when he's um, the fever cologne ad. Oh, those are good. Yeah. Like, OK, so first of all, I have to say I have to say that the fever, the bottle of fever cologne looks like a like a like a somebody drew like a dick and balls on like a wall like really it does it's like a little like it, but which is hilarious but then when he like turns around and looks at the camera and is like let her get the fever you know that um that like cartoon wolf who he like sees the the there's like a cartoon yeah. where this wolf Ooh, sees the woman performing yeah. and then he's like ahuga amana 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 yeah. and he's like banging the table and hitting himself <laughs> in the head with the chair and like <laughs> and like bang 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 that was me that was me I was like ahuga ahuga like I just 
Holy shit. He just has yeah. impact. Oh, yeah. I mean, that he does. And it's funny because even the guy, the guy who ends up hiring for him for the fever ads is the is the guy who got in a fight with the night yeah. before. Yeah. Yeah. Kevin, in the, the story. And you can see why. Yeah. yeah. And, and you can see and you can see why, especially when he, what I love about that. Can I just say how we're yeah, talking yeah, yeah. about how he's he is not campy. John Eric is like a serious contender of masculinity and, and beauty and just like everything you, you think of when you think of like a handsome man who's got it all. And then he's up against Ted. I think it's McGilly, you know, who from like the neighbor from, you know, married with children who's yeah. like fever, let her catch it. You know, he's like, <laughs> he's like, like he's so, he's so he's, corny. He's, he's like so the smarmiest, he's the smarmiest yuppie. I love that. He's so love boat. I love that as a description for a performance. <laughs> he, but he really was. He was the photographer on the love boat. <laughs> but he is, it is very love boat. I mean, even the club scene, I'm pretty sure they were using, you know, the love boat. They were probably using the, the Love Boat set. I mean, Aaron Spelling, you know. Yeah. It does. Oh, my you know, God. It does Aaron look Spelling like a party on the Love show. Boat. So it, it's, yeah. So it's, they probably were using the club scene. You know, they were probably using the a set for the club scene that you're, you're like, right. this is supposed to be Studio 54. It's a Love Boat. Yeah. Know? Yeah. No, exactly. Because I totally got that. I was like, I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> you like just, I mean, it, like it. It didn't look like a party that wasn't fun. It just like it was not Studio Fifty Four, and you know him. Going I would in, go. Yeah, I would go. But him being like, "Oh my god, all of this debauchery," and I'm like, <laughs> "Honey." <laughs> to be fair, I mean, he literally, he he literally was supposed to be this like cowboy from Nevada. I mean, that, oh yeah, you know, I I don't know, I. I could kind of see how he'd be like uncomfortable with all the flamboyance. I've 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 seen that. I mean, we're from Indiana. We're from yeah. the Rust Belt, Indiana. Yeah, so yeah, we know yeah. how people are get really weird about women even wearing dresses. Like women being dressed up is intimidating to people that are a certain way. Yeah. Yeah. You no, know? that that's true. That's true. And I'll I'll say like I thought it was I, I, I thought it was interesting and I liked it how um, every time that he uh, that he did have that reaction and he would say something like, I don't want these fairies messing with my hair or like, this is a bunch of queers here. Then Joan would like step in and and correct him, you know, and be like, these yeah. gay gentlemen are the best in the business. And what's yeah. wrong with you, you know, or be like, you know, you do know that Chuck is gay, right? And so then why are you judging all of these people and you don't judge him? And I was like, that's very progressive for, you know, a movie from 1983. 1983. Yeah. Right? I think Reagan they knew. administration. I think they knew. They knew that, like, because there's a lot of gay characters in this. And I think they knew that, like... Who's going to be the audience for like a Joan Collins movie with the, like this guy in it? It's going to be women, but like gay men too. They knew that there were going to be like a million gay men tuning into this. What I see, this is what I loved about the 80s and media is that it wasn't like how now, you know, you have like Love Simon, which is clearly like this is 
it's it's weird because they're like this is a love story about you know featuring uh you know homosexual leads right but it's very it's almost like the if you just basically copy and pasted to you know to uh homosexual love interest into a boring kind of heterosexual romantic comedy you know what i'm yeah, saying yeah, whereas yeah. making of a male model is very like over the top and fun and flamboyant and and you know oozing with sexuality and yet it wasn't it's not a gay film do you see what i'm saying oh because, yeah well, because I mean, everything had to kind of be under you couldn't be so open yeah yeah and i th- and i mean just the it's such a like you want to talk about female gaze you're like honey let's talk about female gaze because magic this is mike. The, this is the <laughs> this is the magic mike female gaze cuz it's just like and i mean his body we keep talking about his face but like his body is incredible it's perfect like every time i go to the gym i that's what i that's the goal and somehow he just got there um and, i mean my goal when i go to the gym is to see someone who looks yes, like that yes and and like he and they just get him out of his clothes as often as possible and um you know but it's like it's this is so this is like fully the female gaze like the gay gaze on him which is so that thing that we've been talking about with tv movies where it's like you know straight guys are like we don't get this and it's like this is not for you this it's is not for, for you. Us. It's for us. And that's the point. Yeah. That's the point. You get it's, everything else. This is something for you get, us. You get you even get rights. You get bodily autonomy. <laughs> yes. You we get don't even get autonomy. that. Yes. Yeah. And we're expected to pay for everything now, too. So I don't understand. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what's going on. I don't I don't get it. So I think that we need to we're going to need to not only talk about the monologue, but I think that we'll need to play the monologue. We're going to need to put the monologue in here. Chuck's big breakdown monologue. Hey, Tyler, buddy boy. Haven't seen you in a while. Where are you back? Well, let me see. Last night, no, no, not last night, the night before, some friends of mine called up and asked me if I wanted a boogie. Well, I like to boogie as much as the next guy, and when I start to party, I don't stop. You shouldn't be running around like that when you got a cold. A cold? <laughs> oh, been snorting coke, huh? See your arms, you've been shooting up too? Oh, bug off. You're gonna kill yourself, you know that? I was killed, Tyler. Two days ago. Was it three? I got a call for a job. Not from Kay, but uh, from an acquaintance. It's an automobile show. They wanted me to stand next to some miserable, hot new sports car while hordes of people admired the car. It was to be a six-day pull at $40 a day. That's not the best part. The best part? The best part is that I actually went to the interview and didn't get the job. Did not. Mm. 
They said I was perfect, that I lent their miserable new jitney just the right soupçon of elegance, but that I wasn't young enough. <laughs> is, is that funny, Tyler? Hmm? What's the matter, Tyler? Why don't you answer me? Should you? What do you care? Mr. Sex Symbol of these United States. Oh, come on, Chuck. Of course I care. You're my friend. Please, go on, let me help, will you? You need help. Listen, I was big in this town when you were still reading comics. What does that got to do with it? Plenty! Means I can take care of myself. Hey, don't you think you have enough? You don't need that. How do you know what I need? Let me in, Chuck. Aren't you moving out? They told me you were moving out. Why don't you just go? Hey, look, look, I won't move out if you don't want me to. Why do I care? Kate never sends over what I need. She only sends over what she needs. Go on, move out! Maybe the next one will at least pretend to make person. I, um, <laughs> just every bit of that. First of all, my, I mean, my two favorite parts of that monologue are, um, he says, I lent their miserable jitney the right soupçon of elegance, which <laughs> is just everything about that sentence is perfect. Um, and then on the opposite, with that's hilarious. But then on the opposite side, when he turns around and he's like, "You don't know what I need," like <laughs> I was like, "Holy shit!" Like I felt that, you know. <laughs> well, I gotta tell you, what's really creepy is when. If you ever see his clips on when he was on Celebrity Rehab and he was like, he basically was like, it was horrifying. Like he was like, he would say things like, I I mean, his, the demons that he was battling were not glamorous. Like it was definitely terrifying. He would say stuff and it would come from that guttural part. Like, I want to, you know cut myself like i mean he would say things in that vo voice Damn. and that's why it's really creepy is because um he was a heavy opiate user later in life and that's what he died of what? i mean he died of a drug overdose yeah. jeff conaway died what? of drug overdose when he was 60 yeah after doing you know being exploited on 
celebrity rehab. Obviously, it didn't do it. It yeah. didn't. He didn't recover. I don't so think anyone. Who's so done I, that show's I guess recovered, the but. whole thing, like going back, so. He, as a kid, he got into show business early. He worked as a child model. He made his Broadway debut at the age of 10. He mm. then, he was in the original Broadway production of Grease. And then he eventually took over the role of Danny Zuko. And then during dance rehearsals for the show, he injured his back and then was put on painkillers. And then became addicted to them. And because he had to keep dancing... And it got him fired from the show Taxi in 1978. Yeah. Which, uh, he was on that show for three seasons. And as the character of Bobby, who was a struggling actor, um, and what what happened to him on that episode was that he was so intoxicated he couldn't do his scene, so they split his lines between Danny DeVito and Christopher Lloyd. And doing so, they discovered, well, we don't really need him. We don't really need... Jeff Conaway to play Bobby. We don't even need this character. So yeah. they fired him, and that was around 81. And he had done a few other, like, short-lived guest spots, and then he did Making of a Mill Model, and he played a kind of uh, good-looking bimbo male model who was struggling with aging out of the, the system. And yeah. it was interesting because... What he said about his character on Taxi was that he, you know, he was sick of playing a bimbo, a himbo, like a, a blonde bimbo uh, on that show anyway. Uh, yeah, it's just, it's like, and he has so many good lines in this. Like the, um, I loved his like entrance line where... He, he has ice packs to his eyes, and then he says, why, did you get in a fight or something? And he says, yeah, with my plastic surgeon. Um, <laughs> and, and he's always, like, referencing Oz, and he's like, welcome yes. to the land of Oz, where the yellow brick road can be tricky. And being this big campy queen, um, I didn't know about all of his drug problems when I first watched this. So I was just like, oh my God, this is hilarious. And then I was doing research and I was like, oh shit, he was, this was his life. But then I watched it again and I was like, this still is hilarious though. And so I thought that it's, I think that people think that camp, you know, is, is just like silliness. Um, yeah. But I think that we can, like, be moved by camp, too. Like, I think, like, that's, like, Mommy Dearest and, like, Showgirls. The, the power of those movies is that the stars of those imbued those films with, like, a real essence of themselves and, like, their pain and their experience. But it was blown up so big that it became, like, absurd, you know, and, yeah. and like hilarious and you know also kind of scary um well valley of the dolls for yeah. instance like i mean patty duke patty duke her 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 biography i which i read call me anna because that was her real name it's horrific like horrific so when you know her life story and everything you know she was 
she lived with her managers. They changed her name to Patty Duke. She never was able to see her mother. Her One of the stage managers, like one of her managers molested her. And and she had bipolar disorder too, right? Yeah. 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 You know, so she definitely is Neely O'Hara. And then to make it to make it even worse, this is what's even creepier about how films this is why I'm very always like, you know, be careful what you make. Be careful what you're in. Because something I don't know what it is about the power of what we say and what we make, but it comes true in many ways. And when I'm saying that, you know, I'm thinking of Sharon Tate in Valley of the Dolls because mm. you know, you're watching this really silly movie. And then there's that moment when she's going to kill herself, like, and you're, you, you know what really happened to her. And you're like, this is not, this is not just like a silly movie right now. This is something bigger outside of this movie we're watching right now. Exactly. And it changes. It's like you could, it's almost like you could cut that scene and take it out of the movie and turn it into and re-edit it put it with different music, take it out of that context of the world of the movie, The Valley of the Dolls, and it will mean something so much bigger. Because I, I, it, it was like after, it was like 2011, I was going through the, the flabulous drama and all that kind of stuff, trying, you know, with, was I going to sign this contract or not? Yeah, to and make I was this, really hating showbiz. Show. I was hate kid show that I was doing and I and I got this really crappy contract and I didn't want to sign it and everyone around me besides my whole entire body was saying no don't do it and I was I was watching Valley of the Dells and I remember I was like watching it as a joke and then I was sitting on the staircase kind of like watching the scene through a mirror of Jen, of Sharon Tate you know writing her like looking in the mirror as she's going to kill herself and i was just like it it took on this whole new meeting for me and the whole movie did because and the whole book did because to me yeah it's camping over the top but it's not it's it's not actually lying about what show business is especially the book it's not lying about what it does to people no and um how it destroys people but that 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 to me that moment of of sharon tate looking in the mirror in valley of the dolls is like i still like tear up i and even though it's a it's a campy movie like even when you when when he pulls back the curtain on jeff conaway it's like i mean this is what's creepy about it it's like jeff conaway obviously had makeup on and he's playing his dead body of a drug overdose you know, when he's, what, 35 or yeah. 38? I don't know. Maybe he's 27, for all I know, when he played this character. I mean, but what's creepy is, is like, that's how his life ended. Yeah, that's how he died. So, it has a new meaning. Yeah. A horrible no, meaning. It, because it, you know that when, he, when he's in the depth of his addiction and he's dying, it, you know that he was in a similar place as his character. So, yeah, the meaning of it. And, I, you know, sometimes editing and the music can make a performance a lot worse or better. Well, uh, something that I was thinking of is that it's um, maybe it's more of a, a sense of like scale 
than it is like good or bad acting. Like it's just acting yeah. that's like too big for the container that it's in. It's like trying to yes. stuff 10 pounds of acting into a five pound sack. <laughs> You know, and because <laughs> that's what it is. It's like, and I think maybe sometimes when, you know, when somebody relates to a role so much that, you know, it's like, it's hard for them. They want to let all these things out of them or something. But oh, yeah, you see uh, that with Faye. Yeah, with Faye in, in Mommy Dearest. And and I feel like the real camp that like, like the the real, real, real stuff that resonates and becomes iconic in some way is never just purely silly. It has to resonate on some level. It has to hit you on some level. And Mommy Dearest hits you and Showgirls uh, hits you and uh, the Valley of the Dolls hits you. And it's got that emotional resonance at the same time with those like amazing sparkle, Neely sparkle, like hilarious <laughs> moments. And yeah. I think that's the trick is like being able to hold both of those things in your head at the same time. This is really sad, but really funny. <laughs> yeah. And that's, that's why I think Jeff Conway's performance is the, the, the stealer of this movie. Oh yeah. To camp. Like I'm like, that is the person who made this movie a camp classic. It's not just, yeah, it's the tone. It's, it's the, you know, the casting, the world of it, the way, how ridiculous everything is. But man, that monologue to me, I was like, this is top notch. Like this is, you know, <laughs> yes, yes. Know me. Yeah. This is <laughs> know, know me. Thrust, this is, this thrust. is, this is different places, you know, like it's, <laughs> Um, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's no wire hangers. Yeah. Yeah. And, and being able to upstage, you know, Joan Collins, who's a camp icon and also upstage John Eric Hexum, who like steals the spotlight from anyone just by existing. Um, yeah. you know, he, it, I think that th this, I mean, John Eric Hexum is a huge high point and I love him in this so much, but yeah, no, I think that Jeff Conway's performance and specifically like his monologues just, that's the high point of this movie for me. That's, that's the thing that like, I will, I will go back to and think about. Yeah, me too. Me too. Um, should we talk about what, how John Eric Hexum died? Yeah, we should. Um, so after this, um, he was in that football movie, The Bear, with Gary Busey. And then in 1984, he was cast in this show called Cover Up, which is basically, it's really funny, actually. It's like a combination of making of a male model and um, uh, the, the show that he'd been in previously. It's uh, where he's an undercover CIA agent posing as a model. <laughs> and only on TV. Um, and then he was working, I guess, he was saying that he was working really hard. They were working him really hard, very long hours. He was always exhausted. And when they were shooting the seventh episode of Cover Up, um, he was, there was the scene where he was supposed to be loading a revolver. And the bullets that he were using were blanks. And... Uh, 
and so he took a nap on the bed, one of the sets, and he woke up and he was groggy and they were trying to get the shot, but then the shot was delayed. So he was killing time and he was spinning the gun around and he was pretending to play Russian roulette. And he took all of the rounds out of the gun, except for one. And he spun the chamber around and put it to his head and he fired. And a blank cartridge it doesn't have a bullet in it, but it has like pieces of like, like cardboard or cotton or something. But the explosion was strong enough and it was close enough that the, it shot that wad of cotton right into his head. And he was rushed to the hospital. And then, you know, they tried, but he was eventually declared brain dead. And it was just a horrible senseless tragedy and an awful thing you know it like gives me chills talking about it because it's just so it's like what a fucking waste what is really crazy is that his co-star had been injured on set by blanks yes his co-star uh i think it's jennifer o'neill yeah but she, was she had been that. injured on yeah, she had been injured on set with guns, and that's why she she was very, like, she would always say, like, don't play with prop guns, don't point that at me, I'm serious, because he would often play with the prop guns and things like that. Um, and I'm like, where was the prop master? Exactly. Like, where the yeah. hell was he? And this is something that we see often. And every time this happens on set, they're like, we, you know, guns are not a toy. And it's like, but you know what? It doesn't matter because this has happened to John Eric Hexum. It happened to Brandon Lee. It happened to the DP on Rust. The, you know, the Alec Baldwin. Who's, who's dead. Yeah. yeah. This, this continues to happen. And the thing is, is like as more and more. So, you know, as more and more uh, productions become faster paced, independent, whatever. I can tell you gun safety is not something people take seriously i i just produced a short film where they tried to sneak they try to do a forcible yes that's what i call it forcible yes when they're like last minute they try to have an emergency so you have to say yes like oh yeah oh yeah we we forgot this cop was gonna have a gun on him and i'm like uh oh. no you don't you don't get to do that in 24 hours notice or even a week's notice you don't get to be like oh and this no no that's coming from day one written in the script we are not doing that Especially with a bunch of like 18 year old kids who don't even, who, who first of all are all art kids and they don't know anything about handling a weapon. Yeah. You know, not to stereotype, but come on. Yeah. I mean, no, they've, they've we, never, they've we, are, we are not bringing a weapon on a low budget set. We are not. It's just not happening. And, um, every time a tragedy like this happens, that's always, and, and you saw, I even saw news clips that were covering this tragedy that happened in 1984. They were like, and, you know, guns should always be handled by the prop master, always locked up. And it's like, well, yeah, but where was the prop master? Yeah. You know, and, and oftentimes it's because they're working long hours. Yeah. Or you have an actor who will bully the property master. It's like, it's not so cut and dry. You know what I mean? There's so many, there's so many bizarre interpersonal relationships that happen on set. And, and uh, especially in TV, you know, where it's just like, it's, it's such long hours on TV. Oh, it's, it's horrible. Yeah. And people are exhausted, you know? And, 
but I will say the the amazing thing that came out of it is that he did donate his organs and his heart was transplanted to a former Vietnam vet who and it saved his life. His eyes were donated. His kidneys were donated and put into a child. So parts of him literally are living on in other people. I mean, he literally he literally donated his organs. Uh, I think it was a year or two years before this happened, which yeah. is bizarre because one of his close friends uh, had was one of his close friends, sisters or siblings was saved by an organ uh, donor had saved their oh, liver. And so God. he was like, I'm going to become an organ donor because of this. And then, so he had become an organ donor prior to this accident. And because of that foresight, he was able to, you know, uh, help extend the lives of others in many ways. So it's one of those really bizarre things because right now somebody, you know, some child from night in 1983, you know, was able is a grown adult right now walking around with John Eric Hexum's kidneys. Yeah. So that's one good thing that came out of that. If, yeah. if anything. Yeah. But it's just, it's one of those. And I think, I mean, I think that he definitely could have gone on to become a, a very big star, but you know, dying in such a tragic way that, you know, people, I mean, I don't think if you ask the average person on the street about him now, they're not going to know who he is. But something about that, that death, like the people who were around at the time remembered that. And just me as like, you know, a gay guy who likes old stuff, I <laughs> was, um, you know, just like following, I don't know, old you know, gay Instagrams. And then they would put up pictures of him and I'd be like, who is he? And then they would always have, you know, this tragic story. And so I was, I knew I was like, Oh my God, John Eric Hexum. He's that incredibly beautiful guy who died from a gunshot to the head. Um, you know, but it, it sounds like it's the river Phoenix. Yeah. It's, everybody, my, everybody, my age knows where they were when river Phoenix died. But now if you tell that to the regular person, they're like, who the, the Joker. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Never yeah. thought that would happen. Never, never thought anyone would forget about River Phoenix. I know. It's this. So in a way, it's like this movie is, you know, he's got Voyagers and he's got a couple of episodes of that other show. And then he's got this movie and like a few, you know, a few little like a, a little part in a movie and a little guest spot here and there. But those are, you know, those are his things. Those are the things that we have of him. And so you know it as as silly as this is you're like okay this is like a document this is a document of just like how beautiful he was and maybe he would have gone on to become a better actor and like give great performances or maybe he would have gone on to be a big action star or maybe he wouldn't have but we have this thing this record of him you know uh, you know, literally a year before he died. So yeah, it's like that. That's the other thing about movies is that it's literally a record of a person at a particular time. Yeah, yeah. Like me in Flabulous, I had eyebrows. I'm <laughs> I must say, and I miss them. <laughs> <laughs>
I always, I'm reminded, I'm always, every time I see myself, I'm like, oh, those eyebrows. Oh, I had a widow's peak. I remember those days. <laughs> so, in conclusion. Yeah, yeah. Well, just, um, I guess uh, we will say, did we like the movie? Yes, I did. Yes, I did. It yes. was very easy to watch. Yes. Very easy. Very. It was very easy. And I I love I love this movie and I'd been aware of it before. Like just I don't know, like I um but I don't think I ever really sat down and watched it and I got so many different things from so many different levels out of this. And I feel like I'm really glad to like know, to really know about John Eric Hexum now and just know that he's a thing that once existed, that once at one point, the perfect man existed. And, uh, <laughs> I mean, he was really perfect. I mean, he, he even played piano. Yeah, like he, he was a classical in many ways. He was like the male Jane Mansfield. Like he, you know, he played the piano. He was a philosophy major. I mean, he, he had all these things that were hidden under the surface, you yeah. know, of his showbiz persona. Yeah. Which I highly respect because that's really hard. It's really hard to conceal, you know, to not in this day and age where everyone's like, but I'm more than, you know, he never was like, but I am more than just a hot guy. Like, you know, like he was like, no, you use my hot guy persona to get me ahead. Like he wasn't like, you know, I want to be in Peaky Blinders. No, no. But <laughs> Hide in, my real beauty. But in his interviews, he was always, you know, they were like, so what's it like? The glamorous life of a star. And he's like, well, I work very long hours and it's really, I don't get to do much else. It's really not that glamorous. Like he really was just very honest and not trying to pretend to be anything that he wasn't and, um, and not, you know, he, he wasn't show busy in that way that somebody like, I'm thinking of guys at the time, like, like a Burt Reynolds, you know, is show busy <laughs> and would come on and yeah. give you jokes and give you charm and all of that stuff. Um, yeah, he was yeah. just like, what you see is what you get. Um, so I'm so glad yeah. to have been introduced to that. I'm so glad to have like, the monologues of the monologues of Chuck now like have like integrated themselves into my body and my mind. And, and I can say, I, I, I got and I can say things now, like it's a strange apple, this big apple. Um. <laughs> I got into a fight with my plastic surgeon. Exactly. Like, Oh my god. Okay. I feel like I feel okay. like we've got it. We do. This is episode 2 of Mother Murderer Podcaster. Signing off. Bye. Bye.